Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland, senior writer with HowStuffWorks.com, and today's topic comes from a Twitter message I received from longtime listener Antrich. And I apologize, Antrich, if I'm completely mispronouncing your name. I'm sure it's not the first time because you've written before and we've chatted about your stuff before, but he specifically had this to say. Have you done an episode on the story of Dig? D-I-G-G. I am quite, I'm actually quite unfamiliar with it, but I know it's interesting. And here's the thing. I had not yet done a story of Dig episode, and it is pretty interesting. And uh, it's a, a weird tale in many ways. It had a meteoric rise once it debuted, and then a very well-publicized fall from grace, and then a more quiet attempt at recovery. So today we're going to explore the story of dig.com, what it was, how it came about, and exactly why some people say it serves as a lesson in community mismanagement. Uh, It's very interesting. First, uh, let me give you a quick overview of what dig was all about, and to some extent is still about, though the 
current incarnation of Dig is very different from what was thought of as Dig back in the day. So do you know Reddit? Okay, that's kind of what Dig was. Dig was essentially a lot like what Reddit is now. Uh, and a lot of people who used Dig abandoned it for Reddit. And we'll talk about why in this episode. But more specifically, Dig was a site where users could share links to web pages. And it was part social network, part news aggregator. And it set itself apart from other services with similar functions. Like there was Dell Ishus. You might remember that, you old timers of the internet. That was sort of a bookmarking app where you could link to a page that you intend to go back to over and over. And you could easily share those bookmarks with other people. But the whole purpose was this was a reference you intended to return to repeatedly. That's not really what Dig was interested in. They were more about sharing links to timely pieces of content, like news articles, for example. And then users on Dig's site could vote. They could boost a topic further up the main page, or they could end up knocking it down the main page. Boosting was called digging. You would dig uh, an article or a link and say, that's awesome. I want that promoted because I think it's really interesting. If you wanted to vote it down, you buried it. So there was digging and burying, which is odd because if we're talking about the physical act, that's very similar. But in this case, digging means I dig it. Bury means let's bury that story. It's not interesting. It doesn't belong here. Uh, it was also meant to allow users to determine which stories were the most relevant and interesting and they were to have control, really. The idea was that the users of the site determined what went on the site and how that content was arranged based upon their actions. So it gave a lot of control to its user base, and that had a real appeal to it, right? And we'll dive more into Dig in just a little bit. Also, uh, just in the interest of full disclosure, I should point out that while I don't personally know the founders of Dig... We have never really officially met. I think I met Kevin Rose once. Uh, but I know a lot of folks who are friends with them. So we have a lot of friends in common. And uh, over the years, some of the stuff that was going on over at Dig kind of made its way to my ears through the grapevine. You know, just basic gossip type stuff. Now, fortunately, because I'm me, I've forgotten almost all of that. I have no, I remember hearing a lot about Dig back in the day, but I didn't retain any of that information. I never really used Dig that much myself. So it never took hold in my brain. However, I thought it was important for me to disclose the fact that at least I know some of the same people that the founders knew, that we ran in the same circles just to disclose that. Uh, but I don't think any biases have crept through in my reporting of this because my memory is so bad. It's not that I am so ethical. It's that my brain just didn't hold on to the information. I'd like to think I would be ethical if my brain did hold on to it, but we'll never know now, will we? Anyway, the founders of Dig included Jay Adelson, Ron Gorogetsky, Owen Byrne, and Kevin Rose. They started development on the site back in October 2004, and they launched Dig on December 4th or 5th, 2004. 
Uh, so let's talk a bit about each of those guys and what they brought to dig. First, we're going to mention Jay Adelson. Uh, he came from Detroit, and he grew up in, uh, as Cecil of Welcome to Night Vale would say, he grew up in Michigan. He got a degree in film and broadcasting with a concentration in computer science from Boston University in 1992. After he graduated, he worked for companies like the ISP, the Internet Service Provider, uh, Netcom. He helped design the Palo Alto Internet Exchange, and he later founded a company called Equinix, which was another internet data center and infrastructure company. So his work was primarily on the inner workings of the systems that the internet itself depends upon. You know, not websites, or but rather the actual infrastructure that allows computers to communicate with each other. He worked a lot on those, those sort of uh, systems. Uh, and it was actually in his job at Equinix, where he, the, the company he had co-founded, where he would first meet Kevin Rose, you know, one of the other co-founders of Dig, probably the most famous of the founders of Dig. Kevin Rose at the time was doing a segment for a show called The Screensavers, and I'll mention that show again when I get to Kevin. Adelson would then become the business manager for Dig once it became an official thing. He used his experience to hire the initial management team for the company. And it was Adelson who led the charge in raising venture capital shortly after Dig launched. He would also become the company's CEO in 2005, and he would co-found Revision 3 along with Kevin Rose also in 2005. Ron Gorodetsky is a software engineer. He studied at the University of California, San Diego, and his role on the team was to be the systems engineering manager. Gorodetsky would also co-found Revision 3 later on, so he was one of those members. Revision 3 initially was kind of a podcasting and video arm of DIG. Uh, it sort of existed as, as its own thing, and it sort of existed as an extension of DIG itself. Gorodetsky also co-founded a company later on, on called Flick. Had two F's in the beginning. It was F-F-L-I-C-K, so Flick. It was a film, news, and review site that based its information off of Twitter posts. Google eventually would acquire Flick in 2011, and Gorodetsky went on to work for YouTube until 2016. Owen Byrne, the third co-founder, built the PHP code for the original Dig site. And you might be saying, well, what is PHP? PHP is an irritating acronym because it's a recursive acronym, which means that it has its own acronym in its full name. The full name is PHP Hypertext Processor, which isn't a very satisfying answer if I ask you what is PHP. It's a general purpose scripting language and it's open source and it can be embedded into HTML. So essentially what Burns job was, was building out the framework for the original dig site and to add in the functionality of the basic purposes for dig. So he was responsible for making sure that he could actually develop the, the, the basic functions that dig had when it launched in return uh, he was rewarded with equity in the company itself. So he had some ownership of Dig when it first launched. And his title was Senior Software Engineer and Co-Founder. He would stay on with Dig until 2007. Then we get to Kevin Rose, who is two freaking years younger than I am. Multi-millionaire Kevin Rose, two years younger than I am. I gotta be fair, the dude's brilliant. 
He's a very intelligent guy, so I can't really fault him. It's just a case of sour grapes with me. Uh, he has founded numerous startups, including not only Dig, but also Revision 3, uh, a company called Pounce, and another one called Milk. Now, he got his start on the tech TV series, The Screensavers. He originally came on to tech TV as an IT kind of guy. But eventually he started to work behind the scenes as a production assistant for the screensavers. And gradually he transitioned to appearing on camera and eventually became a co-host of the screensavers itself. When uh, Leo Laporte left the show, Kevin Rose kind of stepped into Leo Laporte's role on the screensavers. Later on, Comcast would acquire Tech TV and merge it with another channel called G4. And... Kevin Rose initially would transition over with the G4 team, but by 2005, he negotiated his release from his contract with G4. And of course, by that time, Dig had already become a thing. It had launched in late 2004. It was Rose and Adelson who first came up with the idea for a social news aggregation service. And Kevin Rose decided he would pay for this initial development out of his own pocket. He took $6,000 of his own savings to fund the building of the dig initial build. So it really was his money. I mean, he, he believed in this enough to put his own cash down. It wasn't a case of him asking for loans from other people. He was 27 years old at the time. The co-founders settled on the name dig because they originally wanted D-I-G, with one G, but they had a problem. Disney had already registered the URL www.dig.com. And I don't know if you know this, but Disney's not in the habit of giving up property that it owns typically. So they decided instead to go with two G's and get around that problem. They launched the site on December 5th, 2004. And on December 13th, 2004, Kevin Rose would mention dig.com on an episode of The Screensavers. So he essentially got to use The Screensavers to promote this other project he had done. Uh, he was co-hosting The Screensavers at the time, so he took the time to say, hey, we've got this new project called Dig.com. It's a user-generated news aggregator site, and it's a way for us to really concentrate on the coolest stories out there on the internet. And so the site began to gather users pretty slowly, but steadily at first. And back then the site was really simple. Uh, it listed stories by brief headlines, which were also links. So you could click on the little headline, which was user generated. People would type out what they thought the story essentially was. That would be your hypertext link to take you to the story. They would also include a brief summary of what the story was about and the more users clicked dig, as in, I like this, on a story, the higher it would appear on the main page. Uh, and as some stories would climb up, obviously other stories had to drop down lower. And if a story dropped down low enough, it would eventually roll over to the second page of dig. And this is very much like search engines. Uh, a lot of people will only pay attention to that first page. They don't want to dig further down into the pages. So... Once you end up on page two, it gets really, you, you see a massive drop off on traffic to that link. This is true for Reddit. It's true for Dig, or it was true for Dig, and it's true for search engines as well. Being on that main page is prime real estate. Uh, and if you were burying 
a story enough. If enough users buried a story, it would drop off entirely, and the only way you could see it from that point forward is if you enabled an option in your user profile to view things that had been buried off the page in search results. So you could search for something that had been buried off the page, and you could find it that way, but only if you enabled that option in your profile. It was really all about driving engagement and community activity. And you might want to know what the first few Dig stories were, like what appeared on Dig's site when it launched? What were the top 10 stories of Dig.com when it went live? I got a list for you. Story number one was Cherry OS delayed till Q1 of 2005. And that raises the question, what the heck was Cherry OS? Well, that was a PowerPC G4 emulator for Windows, which is a fancy way of saying it was a program meant to simulate an Apple operating system so that Windows PC users could actually run Apple programs on Windows XP. It was an emulator. It emulated the Apple operating system, or rather the Apple processor, not really the operating system. Anyway, back in late 2004, it was apparently big news that the program was experiencing delays. It would eventually come out on March 8th, 2005, in case you're curious. Not that it's relevant anymore, but there you go. Story number two said that Creative declares war against the iPod. Actually, it said Delares war against the iPod. It left in a typo. But we know they meant declare. And this ties into that topic I covered not too long ago about the history of MP3 players. You might remember that Creative was one of the companies designing MP3 players back in the day. And then Apple's iPod rose up to challenge Creative and other companies. So this was a story that tied into that, the idea that these two companies were at war with each other. Uh, both of those first two links, Cherry OS and Creative, were submitted by anonymous users. But the third story wasn't. Uh, that story was Rumors, Next iPod to Have Downloadable Games. And this was a story that Kevin Rose himself submitted to Dig back in the early development days for the website when they were still building out the site. He submitted this. It managed to become popular 73 days before it was even submitted to the website, according to the statistics on the page itself, which is kind of funny because you could argue this is a bit of foreshadowing for some of Dig's later problems. But honestly, this was probably just to test out the features before they launched it. I don't think there was any real attempt to game the system this early on. It was more about making sure the website did what they wanted it to do before they launched the site. Story number four was one about a torrent search engine. I've done episodes about torrents in the past, if you want to hear more about that. Uh, that was another submission from Kevin Rose, and some people argue it was Rose attempting to get a leg up by dominating Google search for torrents search, because it was a very popular topic back in the day. Still is to some extent. Story 5 was about the Logitech Z5300 5.1 surround speaker system. Probably obsolete at this point. Keep in mind that Rose was coming from a tech review and talk show background, so it's not a huge shock that almost all of the stories on Dig back in the day were technology-related. But then comes story number 6, 
This was a major story. One I think we all agree burst free from the tech-centric nature of the other stories. This was buy one, get one free Jamba Juice. Sadly, 13 years later, this offer no longer applies. They laughed me out of the store. Story 7 was called Ben's Bargains, though there was no possessive apostrophe after the N for Ben, the name Ben, B-E-N. So Ben's Bargains, I assume they mean bargains that belonged to Ben. I wish I could tell you what the story was about, but uh, uh, later on it got deleted or merged into another story, so it's all lost on me. I suppose Ben had a bargain, and I missed it. Bummer. Story 8 was a headline called Cascading Style Cheat Sheet. So this goes back to talking about development, creating cascading styles. Uh, story 9 was Blog Box Applications. And Story 10 was... I don't know. Because it disappeared. It was deleted and not archived in time. So I guess Story 10 is story not appearing in this podcast. Anyway, those were the ten, well, nine stories that first appeared on Dig when it premiered. Now, I've got a lot more to say about Dig, how it developed, and how it eventually imploded. But before I get into that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. 
Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so one of the early features that Dig built into its system was comments. Users could leave comments about links. They could actually start up an entire comment thread. So it turned Dig into kind of a forum about news items. It wasn't just a place to share or promote or bury news. It was also a place to discuss it. And, uh, of course, users could end up burying a news item and make it drop off the list entirely if they felt that it was merited. Sometimes people would try to spam Dig, especially in those early days. I mean, really, it was true for the entire history of Dig because you've got people who just like to cause mischief. So there were people who were trying to spam the page, and luckily the berry function allowed the community to respond and to get rid of stuff that was just cluttering things up. Uh, the same was true for anyone who was seen to be promoting something that was self-serving. So, for example... If I were to try and share a an article that I had written on how stuff works to dig directly, that would not look so great, right? It was meant to be a place where people discovered stuff and shared it with others as opposed to promoting their own work. That was the other purpose for the Barry button, was to make sure that this was truly a democratized, user-generated experience and not something that was dictated to them. More on that as we progress. Now, the engineers at Dig created an algorithm to determine if a story merited inclusion on the main site or in a later revision of Dig on one of its major subsections. So like Reddit, Dig would eventually become divided into departments like gaming, lifestyle, entertainment, sports, science, technology, world and business, and also the offbeat category. And of course, there was the main site, the main page that you would go to if you went to dig.com. That was the primo real estate on Dig. That's where, if you wrote a story, that's the page you wanted it to show up on. Sort of like the main page on Reddit. Very much the same. Dig also created a button that other sites could host on their own pages. So you could include this bit of code in your web page's HTML file and a little button that would would pop up on your page that would allow you to have users click on it and submit content directly from your page to dig. Uh, that would let people either submit a story entirely or to vote up or uh, vote up a story. Really, you'd have to go to dig if you wanted to bury it. But uh, 
Once upon a time, you could dig stories on HowStuffWorks.com. I think we even we had a dig button that was active for quite some time before we did a, a site revision. But uh, yeah, it was one of those where if you wanted to share what you saw, then you could click on the dig button. It's very similar to the way a lot of sites use uh, Facebook and Twitter buttons today. In fact, you could argue that Dig sort of paved the way for those other sites to use that same kind of functionality further down the road. Kevin Rose would also launch a video podcast with uh, Alex Albrecht called Dig Nation. That was one of the cornerstones of Revision 3, that that video and podcast arm that I talked about that they launched uh, in late 2005. They used Dig Nation to talk about some of the top stories featured on Dig, and the first episode published in 2005, several months after Dig had already launched. Um, depending upon what source you look at, some people say it, it Dig started or Dig Nation started in May 1st, 2005. Others say July 1st, 2005, which seems like a pretty big discrepancy. Uh, I was not listening to Dig Nation at that time, so I cannot independently verify that either way. But. Anyway, Dig launched in December 2004, so a few months later you get Dignation, and one of the one of the purposes for Dignation was to talk about stories that had made their way onto Dig and just to be kind of a a discussion forum for it. Um and so in a way it became a promotion for the dig.com website. And the two hosts were really personable and funny and informed, and so it uh started getting popular pretty quickly. One of the top stories of that very first episode was to talk about a major revision to Dig, which was even a, it was not even a year old yet and Dig version 2.0 was coming out. And uh also it didn't hurt that Kevin Rose and and Alex Albrecht would drink a few beers on camera because it made them more personable. They didn't get tore up on camera, not typically anyway. Their shows could get a little rowdy when they would do live shows at, say, South by Southwest. But generally speaking, it just made them seem like approachable human beings who were talking about cool stories. So it was a really appealing pair that had a very approachable style. And it led to great success for Dignation, at least for several years. Uh, I only ever saw them once at a South by Southwest. It was just before they concluded the show. In October 2005, Dig reached out to venture capitalists to get some funding. Remember, Kevin Rose funded the initial launch of Dig with $6,000 of his own money. The company managed to raise a cool $2.5 million from various sources, including the founder of Mosaic and Netscape, Mark Andreessen. The user base for Dig started to grow. It grew pretty steadily. It hit 800,000 users within 18 months of launching, which is pretty impressive. Uh, 800,000 registered users. That's not bad. And the development team was busy adding more functionality during that whole time. Not only did they create that tag system that allowed Dig to divide up stories into different divisions, like whether it was technology or science or whatever, but they also uh, started looking into other features as well, like a friend system where you could befriend other users and follow the kind of stuff that they liked. 
maybe you might share a common interest with someone and that way it gave you even more opportunities to discover cool stories that maybe weren't on the main page when you log in but because your friend liked it you would be able to see more about it so that was a what really made dig turn more into kind of a social network than just a news aggregator really the the name of the game was diversification uh they it really helped dig a lot because when it first started it was almost exclusively focused on technology you remember when i was listing out those first 10 stories well first 9 stories eight of them were about tech only one was not directly about technology so it had a limited appeal for a very particular audience uh let's call them nerds because i am a nerd i have a nerd podcast i'm doing it right now uh, i'm not calling you guys nerds but I'm a nerd. So Dig really had an appeal to nerds when it first started. And again, no disrespect. I consider myself one. But by 2006, the site had really branched out with these other categories like sports and entertainment and lifestyle. And so it had a broader appeal. It was no longer just for technology enthusiasts. It was for anybody who wanted to learn about the coolest stories that were breaking in their particular area of interest. Another adjustment helped add some credibility to Dig. They decided to add in the capability for users to report stories as being inaccurate. So there's a lot of talk today about fake news, about sites that generate articles that are not really reflective of reality that end up being uh, misleading or complete fabrications or lies uh, or they are trying to be satire, but they never really succeed in being satire. Well, Dig built in this tool so that users could point that out. And those links could then be pulled from the various pages on Dig so that they weren't cluttering things up. They also had filters to help catch profanity to help cut down on some flame wars that could go on in comments. As it turns out, when you let people comment... Some people take advantage of that and abuse the system. So they tried to deal with that as best they could. They also wanted to make sure that they could filter out profanity in the headlines and stories themselves. Uh, it was a, a case of trying to make sure that people were using Dig for the way they had intended it to be used and not for it to turn into just the Wild West. And it also showed that they still cared about how Dig operated. In August 2006, Business Week featured Kevin Rose on the cover of its magazine, and Revision 3, that podcasting company that Rose and his co-founders launched uh, in late 2005, helped Dig secure another million dollars in venture capital funding. At this point, Dig itself was estimated to be valued at $250 million, according to the New York Post. So less than two years after it had launched, and it was worth a quarter of a billion dollars. $250 million. That's crazy. But understandable when you realize this was a powerful tool for people to share their interests, and it was driving insane traffic to other websites. Now, in 2007, Kevin Rose said in a few interviews that he was initially a little worried about the types of content that could end up on Dig because he was worried that it might require a lot of policing to make sure that the worst stuff on the Internet didn't really just bully its way 
onto the main page. But he said the community was consistently pretty good at finding relevant, interesting stories and sharing them. And so, really, the community in large part was policing itself fairly effectively. Now, one time this didn't play out the way he wanted was when someone posted a link to an encryption key for HD DVD. Do you guys remember HD DVDs? That was the format that was competing with Blu-rays for high-definition video. Uh, and eventually, of course, Blu-ray won out. But for a while, it was a pretty tough competition. And the encryption key would let you crack the protection around HD DVD, which meant that you could then copy the content off an HD DVD and potentially distribute it. And so a lot of big companies were very upset about this because, you know, they don't really like piracy for obvious reasons. It, it at least is somewhat linked to a drop in revenue, although you can't argue it's a one-for-one -one case. Because if someone steals something, that's not to say that they would have bought it otherwise. Sometimes that's just just not true. Uh, but sometimes if they steal something and share it, it might end up costing you in sales. It's just impossible to know to what extent, right? Because you can't guarantee that all the people who download something would have otherwise bought it. Still, it was a real problem. Now, there's nothing directly against the law from copying the content on a piece of media that you have purchased for the purposes of backup. However, having to circumvent encryption gets a little more shady in the eyes of the law. So while you could make a backup copy, you weren't supposed to break encryption preventing you from making a backup copy. And this is one of the many reasons why pirates versus creators, uh, those battles get really ugly on both sides. Because both sides have... They do a lot of dancing to justify their actions. I'll say that. I don't necessarily think that studios or creative companies are free of blame in these cases. I also don't think that pirates are saints. It's a complicated issue. All right, so Diggs owners kept pulling down links to the encryption key that had been posted. They were trying to head this off. They didn't want to court a major lawsuit with a, a studio. They wanted to avoid that. They didn't want anyone to be able to say, hey, you're hosting this illegal encryption key that's letting people bypass the security we put on HD DVDs. So they were starting to pull down the links, but the users wanted the links, and so they kept on posting them, and they found tricky ways of posting them. They would name them other things in order to try and get around any detection. And so eventually, Kevin Rose decided he was going to side with the community. He said, he said, uh, quote, you'd rather see Dig go down fighting than bow down to a bigger company, end quote. And he said, if that's what you want, that's what we're going to do. We are no longer going to take down those links. And so he stopped. He said, we're, we're going to let them stay up on Dig because that's what you users want. And that's the purpose of Dig is to let the users generate the stuff that they think is interesting, or at least to share the stuff they think is interesting. And so he sided with the community on that one. Now, as Dig grew, so did its influence. Not only was it driving engagement among its users on its own site, it also could help drive traffic to other sites. So if someone shared, say, one of my articles on Dig and it made the main page, we would suddenly see a huge rush of traffic coming in from Dig. And that's valuable. You know, you got to remember 
that most of the internet was generating its revenue through page views because the web pages were supported by advertising. So the more eyeballs that were on the page, the more money you were making. It became a goal for many sites to develop content that folks would naturally share on Dig. More and more began to incorporate the Dig button on their pages to encourage this behavior. As early as 2006, again, it launched in December 2004, but as early as 2006, other companies were already showing interest in potentially acquiring Dig. Yahoo reportedly wanted to scoop up the company for $40 million, not bad for a company that started on six grand. Rose himself was interested in pursuing a deal with a totally different company, News Corp. News Corps had just purchased MySpace. I did a whole episode about MySpace ages ago, if you want to hear about that story. It's, News Corps' purchase of MySpace is commonly referred to as one of the big, big mistakes in mergers and acquisitions in the tech world. At the time, News Corps was offering $60 million to purchase Dig, and Rose wanted to sell. He wanted to take take them up on that offer, but... He wasn't allowed to because Dig had a board of directors and he had to answer to this board of directors and they would not approve of a sale to News Corp. Uh, they thought that the company was worth more than that. They thought Kevin Rose was going to drive this company to even greater heights. So even though Kevin Rose had created the company, even though he had funded the initial company, he didn't have the authorization to sell it to another corporation. So he was forced to stick with it. Um, he was really upset about this, according to several of his friends, and frustrated that he couldn't just sell the company that he had created and make millions of dollars and then move on to do something else. Uh, and at this point, Kevin Rose owned about 60% of Dig.com. They, the board, though, they wanted to hold out for a bigger fish. They wanted to see a better offer. And eventually, a couple years later, a bigger fish happened to swim by, and that fish's name was Google. In 2008, Google was rumored to consider Dig for a potential acquisition for about $200 million. And this was more than just rumor. Kevin Rose talked about it. The deal was well on its way, but it fell apart toward the end. Uh, there were... Fundamental disagreements that the two sides could not see eye to eye on. And ultimately, Google withdrew its intention to acquire Dig. So that was a $200 million deal lost. Kevin Rose was beyond frustrated about that. Instead, Dig ended up going up for another round of venture capital investment to keep the company afloat. Because even though it was valuable, it wasn't really generating that much revenue. So this time they ended up raising $28.7 million from Highland Capital Partners. Meanwhile, behind the scenes at Dig, Rose was battling against his board of directors. Rose uh, decided to partner up with a designer named Daniel Burka, who was also working for Dig at the time. And together they built a file sharing application that they called Pounce, P-O-W-N-C-E. That's when the board over at Dig said, hey, wait a minute, that belongs to us because you work for us and Daniel works for us. So you're using Dig assets to build a totally different application. That should belong to the shareholders of Dig. It cannot be its own thing. Meanwhile, morale at Dig was on the downslope. People were starting to get very discouraged over at Dig. 
And then the board said to Rose, hey, why don't you just knock it out with all those other projects you're looking at? Pay attention to this company that you started. You need to make sure you can motivate the people at dig.com. Pour your energy into being innovative in this company. Don't just look around for other companies. Now, Kevin Rose didn't exactly follow orders. He started working on a Twitter directory app called We Follow, which he audaciously unveiled at South by Southwest in 2009. Dig's board went to Adelson, who was still CEO at the time, and they told Adelson to fire Kevin Rose. So the board of directors tells the CEO, you got to fire this co-founder. But Rose and Adelson had an agreement. They could only fire each other with the other's consent. In other words, they had a veto for any direction that the board wanted to take as long as it was about firing one or the other. So instead of firing him, uh, Dig decided that, hey, we'll acquire We Follow. So the board of directors was able to acquire this this venture that Kevin Rose had created. And reportedly, Kevin Rose earned a few million dollars, like six million bucks as a result of this. But as part of that, in order for him to get this money, he had to stick with Dig uh, a, lot, a while longer. Around this time, Kevin Rose started to invest in other companies. Some of them turned out to be huge ones, like Twitter. But as investments were taking his attention away from Dig, according to his contemporaries, Kevin Rose would sometimes just come in to Dig once a week or just disappear for days and days at a time. The rest of the time he was working on other projects, investing in new companies. And that's really what excited him. It turned out that that's what he was interested in, the early process, when there's nothing but potential. A company hasn't cemented itself. It hasn't turned into its permanent version of itself. It could be practically anything. That's when Kevin Rose is interested in working with those companies. Uh, it gives him a lot of energy and creativity. He's not so much interested once it establishes itself. And managing day-to-day -day activities is not really his forte. But he did help a lot of companies out this way as a, a venture capitalist investor, as an angel investor, if you will. But the board of Dig was getting increasingly frustrated with Kevin Rose. And meanwhile, he was feeling the same way about the board of directors. On the site itself... Things were getting pretty problematic. There were a group of Dig users who had essentially gained control of what did or did not make the main page. In fact, according to some sources, the top 100 users on Dig.com were responsible for 56% of the content on the front page of Dig. Keep in mind, there are millions of registered users by this point, and 100 people are in charge of more than half of what appears on that main page. Now, they weren't exactly gaming the system, but they were definitely using the system to their advantage, whether knowingly or not. You see, the power users, the ones who had been using Dig the most frequently and for the longest, their votes had a heavier weight to them than a new user's vote. So if you had been on Dig.com since the beginning and you had been using it regularly and you voted up on an article... Your vote counted way more than my vote if I just joined dig.com the other day. And so that's how these top 100 users were essentially dictating what would appear on the main page. And again, it wasn't that they were necessarily setting out to do that. They were using dig the way they always had. They were upvoting stories that they thought were interesting and they were downvoting stories that they thought were terrible. 
Uh, it just so happened that their votes counted more than anybody else's. So sometimes they might attempt to boost or drop a story by coordinating their efforts, but it was just as possible that they were literally using Dig the way it was meant to be used. It's just that they had more influence than anyone else did. Now, Dig's initial solution to this problem, because the board of directors, the people behind the scenes over at Dig, they weren't really keen on the fact that a small group of people were having such a huge influence on what was actually being shown. It was very frustrating for new users. It was making it more difficult to attract people to adopt Dig because if you come into a system where it feels like it's an old boys network and all the old boys are the ones who dictate what happens, it feels like nothing you do has any consequence. So they wanted to change this up and they decided to try a couple of different methods to do it, but it didn't go over so well. Uh, one of the things they did was install some controls behind the scenes to decrease the group's influence by essentially de-weighting their contributions. Part of this meant removing the list of top users from the site, which was kind of a, a badge of honor to get your name listed among the top users. But then once they got rid of top users, these same power users started to feel like they were being abandoned or ignored. Uh, many of them felt like they were being uh, uh, dismissed, that the, all the years that they had been putting in working with Dig you know, using the platform, promoting stories, burying bad stories, that all of that was being swept aside. And so they were feeling like uh, that they were being punished for this, even if they were just using Dig the way they always had. And so the company began to alienate some of its core user base. And that was a real problem because they started to set a new tone. All right, we're getting into the beginning of the end, but before I go any further, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. 
from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. At this point in its history, Dig had 43 million registered users. And Dig had started to experiment with generating revenue on its own by inserting Dig ads into its pages. So between various headlines of stories, you would get promoted advertisement. It would just appear right there. They're sort of like the promoted search results that you would find in Google. And like those, the ads were clearly marked as ads. It wasn't like they were tricking you into thinking you were reading a story. They were marked as ads. And not only that, you could actually vote on those ads. You could dig or bury ads. It gave users a lot of power when it came to advertising, something that I think was particularly interesting to allow your user base the opportunity to vote down ads. Uh, it seems like that would be potentially dangerous from a revenue standpoint. But it would also send a real message about whether or not advertising was working or very much not working. Uh, around this time, Dig also launched apps for the blossoming smartphone platforms of iOS and Android. Now keep in mind, the iPhone came out in 2007. Android came out in late 2007, early 2008. This is 2009 we're talking about. So all of those platforms were still very young, especially when you consider the fact that when iOS first launched, you could not develop a uh, an application for Apple. It was just the Apple apps on the original iPhone for a while before they launched the uh, the ability for other people to program apps for it. Things were not going smoothly behind the scenes over at Dig. Kevin Rose and Jay Adelson were having some disagreements about the direction of the company. And those disagreements continued to escalate throughout 2009 and into 2010 until Adelson was asked to step down as CEO. More or less, he was fired. Uh, Kevin Rose chose not to use his veto option. So remember, Adelson and Rose had this agreement where it would require their, their, uh, I guess, I guess their agreement with the board of directors before either could be fired and Rose 
decided not to veto the board's decision to fire Adelson. So Adelson resigned, essentially. He was able to officially, according to the, the communication he gave, he stepped down from the position. But behind the scenes, people say that he was essentially fired as CEO. But he said he wanted to go and work on more startup ideas, and that's exa- exactly what he did. I'll talk more about that toward the end. Kevin Rose ended up taking over control of the company he founded. He became the new CEO of Dig on April 5th, 2010. In May 2010, the company laid off about 10% of its work staff. Now, Kevin Rose was still listening to the community. One of the things that he listened to was their reaction to a tool called the Dig Bar. The company had launched the Dig Bar earlier, and this was a toolbar that would appear above websites. So it would install itself so in your browser, essentially. So you would see this toolbar whenever you would go to other websites. And it was meant to let people interact with Dig without leaving the website they were on. So you could go read some other website and use this toolbar to leave comments about this particular article uh, on Dig, but without leaving the website to go to Dig first. However, a lot of people felt it was really intrusive and, and irritating and distracting. So one of his first actions as CEO, Kevin Rose decided to ditch the Dig Bar. Uh, he was responding to the community reaction. And hopes were running high on Kevin Rose, both from the Dig community and the board of directors. Everyone was hoping that Kevin Rose was getting re-energized, reinvested in the company that he had created. The board had been really critical of Rose's focus on other projects, those other things that he was trying to launch while still technically working for Dig. But they were hoping that this meant he was back on board to lead the company in a new direction with innovation. So... The big hope here was that Kevin Rose was now grown out of a phase, according to like the board of directors, that he would no longer just focus on stuff as it was brand new and when it interests him, but that he would be capable of leading the company in the day-to-day operations of Dig.com. Meanwhile, the company began to alpha test the next version of Dig.com. This would be version 4.0. This is the infamous one. This is the one that people totally flipped out over for good reason. I don't think that it was unmerited. So before Kevin Rose became CEO, Dig.com showed off some of its concepts for version 4.0 at South by Southwest uh, in 2010. And a lot of people were really excited by what they saw. They thought that the innovations were merited. They were good. They felt that it was going to add value to the dig.com experience. But once Kevin Rose took over as CEO, he essentially threw all of that away and decided to start from scratch. He more or less discarded all the changes, all the work that had been done for version 4.0. And this alienated some of the engineers at dig.com as a result, some of whom left the company because of that. And instead he said, let's go in this completely different direction. And there are a lot of people who argue about why he did this. Some people say he genuinely just didn't see the value of the revisions. Some say, well, this was an effort for him to distance himself from the previous CEO. But whatever the purpose he decided to go in a totally different direction. And it was one that ended up being almost universally unpopular among his community. So 
one of the new features of the Kevin Rose-led version 4.0 of Dig.com allowed news sites to submit their own content automatically to Dig. I cannot stress how this alienated the community at Dig.com because, keep in mind, up to this point, the whole concept was that users were the ones submitting and voting on the content that would show up on Dig.com. If you thought a story was interesting, you could submit it. If other people thought it was interesting, they could vote for it. And that's how it could naturally rise to the top. Now, with version 4.0, a news site, a media company, could submit its own stuff directly to dig.com, bypassing that user experience, essentially turning dig.com into more of a normal news aggregator and less of a user-generated experience. So it seemed completely antithetical to the original philosophy behind Dig. And as a result, community members went bananas. In fact, a lot of people said that this was going to be the death blow of Dig.com. And arguably, that's what did it. Uh, so a lot of people decided that they would just leave and go and use Reddit instead of Dig.com. Reddit was much more similar to what Dig had been in the past. It also didn't help that Revision 4.0 consolidated a lot of those interests that I talked about earlier, you know, things like sports and entertainment and lifestyle. It consolidated a lot of those and made it more difficult to find specific content in those buckets because now they were bigger buckets that contained lots of stuff, not just these broken out uh, interests. So they also got rid of the bury button. So you couldn't bury stories anymore. You couldn't vote down a story. And arguably it was to make sure that these users couldn't just end up taking control of Dig and get rid of anything that, that criticized themselves, for example. But it also meant that there was, if someone, if a news outlet published a story directly to dig.com, there was no way for you to express your displeasure to vote that story down. The only thing you could really do is not vote it up. So a lot of people felt that this was taking the voice of the community away from the community. And this was a community-based website. Some people decided that they would promote stories from Reddit kind of as a, a way to make a, a dig at dig. So they would submit links from Reddit onto dig.com. It was a, kind of a method of protest, but more people were just leaving dig entirely. They were ditching it and going to Reddit. In fact, uh, Alexis Ohanian, one of Reddit's co-founders, wrote an open letter to Kevin Rose, and he was specifically criticizing the fact that they had made these changes. Ohanian said... The new version of Dig reeks of VC meddling, and VC stands for venture capitalist or venture capital. So Ohanian was essentially calling Dig a sellout, saying, obviously you're taking money from these companies in order to have this relationship, and it's at the expense of the community that made Dig a, a valuable asset in the first place. He was saying, it's not the links that make dig.com valuable. The links already exist out there on the internet. What makes dig valuable is this user engagement, this community that 
ends up supporting various links. That's where the value is. But you're completely undermining that by siding with venture capitals, uh, investors. After just a few short months, it was clear that Kevin Rose's heart was not in running this company and leading it in day-to-day operations. It didn't excite him. He found it grueling. He still very much preferred being in on the ground floor as a company is just starting to find its way. He still thought that was the most interesting aspect of business. He was CEO for less than six months. Dig then hired on an Amazon executive named Matt Williams to take over the role of CEO, and Kevin Rose stepped down in August 2010. Rose himself began to drift away from the company again. He was showing more interest in venture capital investments and other uh, other ventures and less interest in the company that he founded. By March 2011, he officially resigned from Dig.com. He remained on as sort of a consultant to the board, but he was no longer an official employee. He also launched a company called Milk. This was meant to be a startup lab for new applications. So if you wanted to develop an app, then Milk was supposed to be a place where you could incubate these ideas. And Rose thought that this would give him the opportunity to work on a lot of different projects just as they were starting up which meant that he would constantly be engaged. He would never get bored because there would always be something new to work on. Didn't work out that way. The first app out of Milk was an application called Oink, as in the noise that a pig makes. And it was the only app the company ever produced. And rather than continue to develop Oink, Rose chose to shut down Milk and he joined Google instead. He took over some of the people from Milk, and they all joined Google Venture, which is kind of their uh, startup and spinoff lab. He also brought the Dig Nation show to an end in late 2011. He said that they had stopped recording the show by October 2011, but that the unpublished shows would continue to air or to to be published until uh, sometime in January 2012. And that's when Dig Nation came to an end. It had a two-part finale, and then it was over. Meanwhile, Dig.com was still hemorrhaging users. It didn't last much longer after Kevin Rose resigned. On July 12, 2012, Dig was essentially split into three different components and sold off to different buyers. The intellectual property of Dig.com itself, the website Dig.com, uh, it went to a company called Betaworks. Uh, they bought this once incredibly valuable asset for $500,000. Keep in mind, this is a company that just a few years previous had been valued at $250 million. And then the site is sold for 500000 As for the other assets, they brought in more cash, actually, than the intellectual property of Dig.com itself. LinkedIn bought several patents that Dig.com owned. Uh, for $4 million. So the patents were worth more than the website was. And the Washington Post spent about $12 million bringing on several members of Dig's staff to work on its social code project. Now, Dig.com still exists today. If you try to navigate to Dig.com, you will see a website. It is a news aggregator website. It looks very different from what it used to be. Now it looks kind of more like a standard news aggregate website uh, with images and links to various stories across the web, users can still give stories 
a thumbs up. It can promote some stories into a more visible position on the web page. But there are human editors who moderate what shows up on the page itself. And you can't comment on stories anymore, at least not right now. According to Betaworks, the reason for this is that comments are hard. And that's totally true. I am not making fun of Betaworks for saying this because it is really a challenge to implement comments in a constructive way on your website, particularly in today's world, because it can easily be abused very, very easily. Too many people take the opportunity to use a comments section to cause mischief. And it, there's not really a big surprise here. It takes very little effort to cause a whole lot of commotion using comments. So it takes little work to make a big impact. If you're someone who likes to cause trouble, that is an open-door invitation to do so. And obviously we've seen this across other places on the web. YouTube's a great example. It's not as bad as 4chan, but it's a great example. So Dig still exists, though you don't hear as many folks talk about it these days, but it does get several million visitors each month. Uh, according to one source, I saw that it got 12 million monthly visitors as of January 2015, so one would presume it's probably around that level or higher now. And 12 million monthly visitors isn't anything to sneeze at. It's a pretty healthy amount of traffic. As for the founders, what are they up to now? Well, Jay Adelson worked on several different ventures after he stepped down as CEO. He ultimately co-founded a company called Center Electric. It's a venture capital firm, and so Adelson is still using his experience and money to help launch new companies. Ron Gorodetsky stayed with Dig until July 2010, which means he left during Kevin Rose's tenure as CEO. He went on to co-found Flick, the review app that I mentioned earlier in this episode, and then he transitioned over to YouTube. He worked there till February 2016. He then became a digital service expert in the United States Digital Service. This is a startup company at the White House dedicated to using technology to create better tools and services for American citizens. No word on how that's going right now. Owen Byrne left Dig in 2007, and he worked for several different companies over the following years, including Expedia and TripAdvisor, and he was mostly building out systems for these companies. So he was working on the back end, and you know, once you finish that, then often you might go on to do it at a different company. So that's largely what he did. As of January 2017, he started working for Zipcar in San Francisco as a software engineer. And Kevin Rose, well, he's still an advisor to Google Ventures, which is, again, that division of Google that is all about creating startups and spinoff companies. He sits on the board of a company called Hodenkey, which is a wristwatch enthusiast website, related, I assume, to the wristwatch manufacturer out in Europe. And he's still involved in venture capital. He invests in companies early on while they're still malleable. Dig is an interesting story, and many of the elements that were pioneered at Dig found their way into other platforms, like Reddit or Twitter or Facebook. All of these ways of sharing content, many of them originated over at Dig. So we have Dig to thank for a lot of the way our social networking sites work today. And also, it's easy for us to see in retrospect how the decisions that were made over at dig.com ultimately were its undoing, particularly in how it seemingly turned its back on the community of users that made it so valuable in the first place. 
But at the time, it was probably much harder to see that that's what was going to happen. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't make those decisions if you knew it was going to lead to the collapse or implosion of a company. Democratization on the Internet is a tricky thing. So if I ever do an episode about Reddit, I'll get into more about the democratization of the Internet. Reddit is not a stranger to controversy. It is structured very much in a way that is similar to the early days of Dig.com, but they have been no stranger to behind-the-scenes drama. There have been plenty of stories about that over for Reddit. So it's not like Dig.com was an example of just bad management. It's a very tricky thing to do when you're letting your users define the experience. Sometimes that does not turn out in a way that's particularly nice. But that all belongs in another episode. For now, it's time to sign off. Remember, if you have suggestions for future episodes, you can drop me a line by emailing me. That address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. Or you can watch me live stream live on Wednesdays and Fridays over at twitch.tv slash techstuff if you want to see me in action. You'll also hear episodes about a month before they publish that way. Take care, and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. 
So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.